it was like a combination of enormous commitment and somewhat lack of judgment. Um, <laughs> that, that's basically what the what the labor movement is built on. That it's really Which true. Commitment and we a certain need, amount of lack of judgment. That's right. Without the lack of judgment, we, you, you would, wouldn't get anywhere. Really. <laughs> Hello, this is Sam Smucker. This is the Smash Up Derby. I'm here with my co-host, Jonathan Kassam. Hey, everyone. There's Jonathan. And we're here with a uh, our guest, uh, John McCurley. Is that right, John? Did I say yes. your name right? Yes. But tell, tell us your title so everybody knows who you are. Okay, I'm the oral historian with the University of Iowa Labor Center. I work on something called the Iowa Labor History Oral Project. And John is going to walk us through some of the things that have happened in Iowa over the last couple of years. But uh, most importantly, he's going to tell us this great story about um, how public sector bargaining came to be in Iowa. Uh, focus on a strike in uh, Keokuk, Iowa, that was a central uh, part of the, the general struggle to get uh, public bargaining in Iowa. And, and then, of course, what we've seen in the last year or so is that that public sector bargaining, those rights have been rolled better. But also because John is a oral historian, you've got uh, tape, the, the strike in Keokuk. Yes. And, and we're going to be able to use some of that, those clips along the way. And, uh, and so, so the, the production, the production values on this episode are going to be like. 500%. Right. Through the roof or it's going to be a real disaster. We'll, you know, <laughs> you all will get to judge. So, uh, so John, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do at the Labor Center and the, uh, the Iowa Labor History Oral Project? Sure. Since 2013, I have worked as the uh, oral historian at the University of Iowa Labor Center, where I manage something called the uh, Iowa Labor History Oral Project, uh, or ILHOP. And uh, ILHOP was founded in the 1970s as an oral history project that was uh, that was founded by the Iowa Federation of Labor. And this is this is pretty unique in the in the American labor movement, right? There are similar kinds of programs, but one of the things that makes ILHOP unique is is one, its longevity, right? That it's 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 been around for, for now 40 years. Um, but also that it's it's more than it focuses on more than one union, right? So it's it's statewide. Right, um, right. You know, so so like for example, there is a um, the the longshoremen uh, have a a similar project started in the 70s, but it really focuses on just the ILWU, um, you know, whereas whereas ILHOP is is much broader, right, right. And uh, and so you you were you were telling us uh, earlier that the origins of this were really in kind of capturing the origins, uh, particularly the private sector, sort of the industrial labor movement uh, of the of the 30s and 40s. But that your since since you've come on, you've really been uh, sort of bringing bringing it up to date, looking at the the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and that that really sort of brings the public sector into into the picture in in new ways. Um, there, as I as I've learned, there were a few public sector unions uh, organized well before there was 
a, a legal framework for public sector collective bargaining in Iowa going back at least to the 30s. Um, in many cases, these were unions, you know, small locals that were often, you know, uh, on a municipal basis that were organized by what were then powerful private sector locals. So like the mine workers had one in, um, in Fort Dodge and the packing house workers organized some in, uh, in, in Waterloo. They, they were around, but right. The, the, these were all people who were organizing, um, uh, outside of a legal framework. And so a lot of my, a lot of the work that I have done has been on trying to understand how workers organized in the late 60s, early 70s to create that legal framework. And that legal framework is, is uh, you know, I think of, of particular importance or of particular interest to us right now because there have been some uh, some some pretty massive changes uh, in the in the public sector collective bargaining law in Iowa uh, over the last year, right? And uh, could, could you tell us a little bit about what happened? Um, this past year in the Iowa State Legislature. Over the last year, um, what's happened is is that in, in the elections of 2016, um, there was a, a razor-thin Democratic majority in the s- state Senate that had been preventing essentially the worst excesses of um, an, an exceptionally conservative uh, Iowa Republicans from becoming law. Um, that was overturned a year ago in the state, uh, in the elections. And uh, and and what that meant was is that um, there there have been a rash of of anti-worker laws uh, that have been pushed through through the the Iowa legislature and signed by our what was then our Republican governor Terry Branstad. Uh, one of them was a a massive gutting of what was then um, the Iowa Public Employment Relations Law, which was enacted in 1974. It, essentially, what it did was it it was you know it was very similar to what happened in Wisconsin. And under the Iowa law of '74, um, there was a, a a limited scope of bargaining that was that was repealed back to being nothing more than base wages. There were annual recertification. Well, I should say recertification elections that were tied to to new contracts. So every time that a contract would come up comes up now under the law. Uh, a, a unit has to undergo a recertification election that they have to pay for. And in those units, anyone who doesn't vote is effectively counted as a no, right? So you have to get 51% of the entire unit, uh, not just 51% of, of voters. Right. Which, which as, as I think someone I saw in a news report of a, a member of a, of a union in Iowa said like no, no Republican, probably also no Democrat could actually get elected under those laws if those applied to our political elections, right? Right, right. You have to get 51% of actual voters to vote for you. Right. Um, but again, we had a really, a really good uh, arbitration system in the 1974 law um, that's largely been scrapped and, and you know, very, very few elements are are able to be brought to our, to an arbitrator and, and the ability of an arbitrator to, to take factors in consideration has been considerably constrained. Um, so, you know, so, so a sense, in a sense, really what we have now is an anti-collective bargaining law. That's the way that I have begun to think about it. How, why do you, why do you call it an anti-collective bargaining law? Uh, you know, it, it leaves, it leaves a legal framework in place just so that they they can claim that, uh, there is in fact a framework 
but it makes it so difficult and raises so many bars for public sector workers that they hope that workers will, will say, well, there's really nothing this can do for me. Why should I continue um, to be a member? So and put, I, I should you put so many restrictions on the unions that essentially you can't win. And so then the hope is workers will just throw up their hands and walk away. Right. Well, right. Right now, the question becomes: You know, are there are there other strategies? Are there other ways that workers can use concerted activity um, to still be effective? I, I would say that the the question is still open as to as to the degree to which workers can actually be effective in their workplaces. And then I think that that there's I know that there are a lot of Iowa workers who are right now actively trying to figure out strategies whereby they can. Uh, continue to make their unions effective, but in effect having to reinvent themselves and reinvent what public sector unionism means in Iowa. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how that law came to be and sort of what working in the public sector was like before before Chapter 20 came into effect? Sure. Public sector workers were not uh, included in the in federal labor legislation in the 1930s, right? Not part of the, the Wagner Act, um, whether they be federal, state, or local. So what that means is that that a lot of that fell into into states under state law. In the case of Iowa, you know, there were these occasional locals who were uh, effectively bargaining for a long time before the 1970s, but that was all being done outside of this legal framework, right? So you would have you'd have workers who would come together, who would send representatives to 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 meet with their employers and in some cases the employers recognized that that this was to their advantage and they would recognize and i mean that with quotation marks around it <laughs> right right you know the, these these representatives and so that this process was going on uh, as i've i've found you know well into the 1960s but it was also beginning to essentially break down it was and it was a meet and confer process right so um, you know you would come these representatives would meet they would confer with the employer and they would they the, the employer could take their recommendations under consideration or not were the workers represented by unions or were in other words were they affiliated with the unions or were they independent groups of of employees in, in most cases that i have found they, they were represented by by unions or or by various kinds of associations that were in the process of taking on collective bargaining right so the best examples uh, here are the iowa state education association um, which was in the process in the 1960s of going from being uh, an association that, that was essentially a social association that included both administrators and teachers uh, to being a teacher-run organization. So, you know, you have in the 1960s, I found this, um, you know, a, a rising generation of rank-and-file teachers who are committed to making the ISEA and their local EAs into into really aggressive vehicles for teacher empowerment, and and what that meant was pushing out the uh, administrators in the process. So, what were the main sectors that were involved in this? So, the teachers would have been important, right? Teachers were very important. Uh, the firefighters um, were also very important. There are nurses who are organized and who strike during this this period. It really, the but, but the teachers and the firefighters are really the two most important and most well organized parts of the public sector in Iowa during the late '60s, early '70s. AFSCME, there are AFSCME locals, but AFSCME doesn't doesn't really become a major player until after the law is uh, is in effect. Mm -hmm. 
and ask me if, is is the main sort of municipal workers municipal and state workers union in the country and and famous really for for the the Memphis sanitation workers strike right and so you know a lot of these groups that were that ultimately are going to to go into Asks me, you know, there, there, there are some of these groups that are organized in these sort of ad hoc ways by, like I say, the packing house workers or the, um, you know, the, or you know, these packing house workers or the or the UAW or these these again sort of what were the large private sector unions, um, but that that's all going to sort of shift around in the seventies. So you know, you I know you recently published an article um, in, in uh, Labor Online about that really highlights highlights the role of the 1970 teacher strike in Keokuk in paving the way uh, for the public sector collective bargaining law. And, um, can you tell us a little bit about that strike in the aftermath? You know, it's not the only strike. There were strikes by municipal laborers, by firefighters, by teach, by excuse me, by nurses, all during this period of, of about of the late '60s, early '70s. But in many ways, I would argue that this this uh, Keokuk teacher strike is probably the most important of them, in large part because it was tied into the ISCA, which was uh, which was the main organized public sector lobbying group pressing for this law. Keokuk, even though it's a very small town, and it was a, a small town then, relatively 14,500. And where's Keokuk um, at? Tell us, tell us about Keokuk. It is, so it is, it's a, it's a town that's right at the, the, the point where Iowa, uh, Illinois, and Missouri meet, right? So right there on the Mississippi River. It's a, it's a town, it's a little industrial town. Uh, it had a long history, and it still does, of, of grain milling, for example, and had a strong grain millers union presence. But again, the teachers had, they had actually developed quite a, a strong group of teachers, one of the most well-educated group of teachers in the state, because in the 1950s, 1960s, there had been groups of citizens who wanted to, you know, to, to, to create a really strong teacher corps, but it ended up drawing a large number of teachers with both master's degrees and PhDs, in fact. And they developed a little community college there. And it, and it really was a in a tight cohort of, of teachers um, who had a really strong sense of themselves as, as professionals and, uh, and had developed a meeting confer process where they felt like they had a good deal of respect and control over their workplace. Okay, so this all runs up, though, into, in 1969, a group of, of local elites have gotten uh, a new superintendent installed in Keokuk and with the express purpose that he is going to roll back this system. Uh, his name is Robert Leland, and uh, and he very quickly takes charge of these these negotiations uh, in 1969, 1970. The real centerpiece of this is uh, what the teachers end up calling the rainbow schedule. So what had existed in, in Keokuk was a schedule, a pay schedule, much like the, uh, you know fairly traditional one, which was based upon years of service and level of education. It worked like a like a traditional schedule in years between the the first year of hire and year 10, where it had different levels of pay uh, that increased moderately. But what happens in year 10 is that it flatlines from year 10 all the way to year 35, because the idea here is, well, we're not going to let, allow these to continue to increase this way, but we want to, one, stop the, the increase over time, but also put more power into the hands of administrators. So so in those flatline years, the pay increases would have all been essentially merit, right? So all these other little jobs that, that are doled out by administrators at their largesse, 
right? So, so rainbow refers to the shape of the pay scale, right? Not the, how colorful it is. Pre- precisely. It, right. Uh, there, I think there was some colorful language right. when they saw what the schedule looked like. But yes, there, the idea is that it goes around. As I say, it's rainbow, which means that it goes up, it flatlines, and then it actually goes down. So after year 35, wow. yeah, after year 35, um, pay slowly decreases over time oh, until until it until it compresses into a single uh, single pay level at year forty. The the idea, I mean, and, and and Leland was clear about this was that he was really intent on you know essentially once you had worked through your uh, you know your the years that you were going to be most productive, he wanted to push you out. Mm-hmm. There there had been already some forms of merit pay being used in the system, and and again, this was actually one of the reasons that teachers resisted it so much because they had seen just how discriminatory these these merit pay systems could be. And the, the most um, evocative example of this is something that the teachers uh, referred to as the stud fee. Yeah, so... So, so what this... What, I can tell this is going to be awesome. So what this was, was a, a dependency allowance that... So remember I told you that, that there had been these, this, this group who had wanted to, to uh, stack the, um, the Keokuk uh, teacher corps with MAs and PhDs. They also wanted to stick... To, to stack it with men, right? So we're going to turn into this professional, masculine, well-educated teacher corps, right? Mm. Well, how, how are we going to do this? Well, we're going to give a dependency allowance specifically to men. You know, up to a certain number of children, male teachers could could uh, could get this allowance. But women were systematically being pushed out of the profession when they became pregnant, even when they were married. Um, so let me just tell you one, one quick story, which is, is that... Um, that, that a teacher told me, which was that she was an elementary school teacher. Um, she had gone with her husband to the river, right? They're, they're on the Mississippi on a weekend. And she had gone into a convenience store to get ice, um, but she was wearing a two-piece bathing suit. And she had been seen by the parent of the mother of one of her students in this convenience store in her bikini. The The parent had phoned her, her principal and on the next Monday, she had been disciplined for actions taken on, for indecent behavior taken on a weekend. Wow. Wow. So for wearing a bikini. Precisely. <laughs> the thing. I, I think this would be a really interesting way to listen to one of these interviews with the Keokuk teacher where she talks about the like very specific gender gendered aspects of merit pay and the ways in which it was really policing women's sexuality. Hmm. Okay. Yes, yeah. Yes, exactly. And that, that, that clip is Janet Fife LaFriends. She's the woman who told me the story about the bathing right. suit. If you, had to, if you had to look back and say the roots of this strike lay somewhere, where would you place those roots? I would put the roots of it um, on a philosophy of merit pay. Mm. Um, and that began about 67. That was the era that young people were... Um, feeling their oats. Mm. That was the year of the hippies, the flower child, the Vietnam conflict, and there was a lot of turmoil throughout the world. And it trickled down into our small community, too. Mm. Um, So we wanted to wear a pants suit. Heaven forbid were we scolded if we were seen in slacks. Uh, If your skirt was too short, mine was once, I got a demerit on my contract and it took away some of the money I was going to get for a raise because I happened to be wearing a fashionable miniskirt. Um, Being seen pregnant 
I'd been married five years, pregnancy occurred, I wasn't to be seen in public because that was indecent exposure. I don't think so. Things happen, you know. I'd been married a long time. Um, the, another incident was being seen in a bathing suit. That was indecent exposure. Thinking back what we did in the 67 to 70 era of time is nothing compared to what you see in today's world. Mm. And and so do, would you say that so so you see this as as partly a generational clash where you had older administrators both men and women yep. trying to enforce these um, these traditions. The traditions and not understanding that education is what that teacher is doing to enable the student to better learn, to expand their knowledge, to become more competent with their skills so that they can become productive citizens. It has absolutely nothing to do whether your skirt is too short, whether you're pregnant after five years of marriage, or whether you wear a bathing suit. By uh, the spring, of, by the winter and then, and then early spring of, of 1970, these negotiations break down in large part because Leland refuses to budge, mm-hmm. right? Teachers, teachers are used to, to having right. some give and take Leland's basically saying no. Um, they, they do have a, an agreed-upon process, right? And so Leland kind of goes along with the process to a certain degree. Um, and this is also an interesting little little side note here, which is that so he agrees because through through their process, there is a mediator, uh, a mediation phase within the process. So 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 Leland still is willing in the winter of 70 is willing to, to go keep the show going. And uh, and allows to, to an mediator to come in, but he feels like he's he's got a ringer because the mediator who they bring in is a is a faculty member from the the um, the College of Education at the University of Iowa who was Leland's dissertation supervisor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he thinks, okay, you know, um, you know, the, I got a ringer. You know, the, he's gonna he's gonna side with me, and uh, and then we'll just do this thing. But what happens is that this this uh, this professor actually looks at the rainbow schedule and goes, "Oh my gosh, this is completely inconsistent with other things happening around the state. This is completely unnecessary and unwarranted," and he advises against it. Mm-hmm. And it's right. the first time someone gets screwed over by their dissertation advisor, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but so what happens is the KEA, the, the Keekuk Education Association, who has of course been, you know, just been being beaten up. Uh, you know, they 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 came in with a um, a long list, laundry list of things they wanted to talk about, right? You know, that included uh, class sizes and curriculum and all these things, which they of course they jettisoned very quickly when they realized that Leland was going for the jugular with this uh, rainbow pay schedule, right. and so. Right. So they, they were like, so, so when they, when, when the mediator came back with this, um, compromise again, quotation marks that essentially again, got rid of all of their long laundry list of things, but, but kept their original pay schedule. They, they of course accepted the mediators, uh, compromise and said, this is now our proposal. Mm-hmm. And, and then and of course what Leland and the board say is, you know, so what? I don't, we don't care. There's no law making, making us continue to negotiate or to, to, or to accept what the mediator says. We're simply going to, you know, we don't like what the mediator says, so we're going to ignore it, and we're simply going to push through our own proposal. So this is where the strike comes, right? You know, so the teachers have been pushed in, you know, into, a, into, into a wall, and they don't really see any other option other than to strike. You know, call, call strike votes. 
um, which is almost unanimous, go out on several days worth of strike. So the so it's important here to note that that so there's no no statute in Iowa in 1970 declaring strikes illegal. There 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 was a, a bunch of case law that had been determined to to essentially make public sector strikes illegal, but but there wasn't a statute. So what happens is that as soon as the teachers go out on strike, the school board seeks an injunction. Uh, which a judge uh, happily grants. But three days later, when the strike is not not ended, they go back to the judge. The judge is really angry and orders the primary leadership of the Keokuk Education Association uh, rounded up and arrested and taken to jail. And as soon as those arrests take place, it's almost like the board never really, they, they just kept expecting the, the teachers to fold. And when they didn't fold and they, they allowed the leadership to go to jail and, and still tried to maintain the strike, that's when community, you know, th- there were community leaders behind the scenes who had been trying to work things, including uh, private sector union leaders and clergy who had been trying to push for a settlement. But, you know, suddenly the, the, the community really turned against them uh, and the board broke. And because the teachers had called their you know bluff essentially, the, the, the community turned against the the school board. Right, the community yeah. turned against the school right. board. See, seeing these teachers, which included a forty a forty year old elementary school teacher being taken to jail for striking, um, it, it it turned the community against the board. The board sends in um, negotiators into the jail, and they negotiate a compromise agreement all through the night. Um, yeah. That, that, that produces an agreement that looks a lot like what the mediator had suggested. So Also, we, we have a clip, right, of, of someone talking about their experience being taken to jail. Yes, the, 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 the 40-year-old woman uh, who was then uh, Betty Peters uh, talking about the conversation she, was ha- she had with the uh, sheriff. See, we, we had been warned on Friday, May 8th, when we were putting, when we were putting in jail mm-hmm. after having struck. The uh, sheriff who drove us from the courthouse to the jail said to us, he said, I guess you know, or I don't know that you know, but this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, is to take you from the courthouse and put you in jail. Okay. But I said there was so much at stake that I really had no choice. Because up until that time, the board of edu- boards of education paid us whatever they wanted to pay us, and you can be sure they kept it minimal. And we thought we should have a voice in what we were paid, and that's why we struck. Uh, so then, I assume the strike is settled, and it's settled uh, on the terms that the mediator had suggested. Uh, essentially, yes. It has two different meanings, I argue. Um, one is locally, it, it actually doesn't resolve a lot, right? Because, you know, um, you know, we still have these two sides who are really locked in battle, and Leland doesn't go anywhere for a while. And there's actually almost another strike several years later, which is only narrowly averted, um, in large part because of the of dire threats lobbed by the um, by the board. Uh, at the teachers, but but really, where I think the strike is really most important is is symbolically because it really does help to gel a lot of the support for a statewide public employment law. I, I would argue at this point, 
tentatively. What's happened in Iowa in the 50s and the 1960s is that the the power of of private sector organizing in in small towns all across the state um, has has really in many ways shifted the Republican Party, uh, or at least created a uh, created a, an, an Iowa liberal Republican tradition that is really quite important. Uh, and the the governor at the time, Robert Ray, is is part of this um, this tradition, um, one which is quite very much a Taft Hartley kind of position, right? You know, very much in favor of right to work. But at the same time, recognizes that there are union voters in towns all across the state who they want to court. Again, this liberal Republican tradition is interested in cutting a deal, right? Mm. As early as, as October of 1969, Governor Robert Ray is a, this is even before the Keokuk strike, interested in having public employment uh, legislation. There is enough pushback from within the party that, um, that he can't through. Uh, it, it, it takes it takes several years, even after the Keokuk strike, um, from you know between seventy and seventy four, for this momentum to build. But it but it's but it's building in part because lots of people, union members, um, you know, t- teachers who are organizing, lawmakers even are beginning to say we don't want more of these Keokuk strikes popping up all over the place. Right. And and is the state the uh, Iowa politics? At that time, is um, also dominated by Republicans, or is, is leans towards Republicans, or it does it does lean towards Republicans. So you know the the, the Iowa Democratic Party had revived um, in the in the sixties, um, but uh, but but still there was a very strong uh, Republican Party that, as I say, was 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 factionalized, and and actually in nineteen seventy four the Republicans. Uh, had both the governor's uh, office in Ray and a majority in the House, um, while the Democrats had the Senate, and and so uh, in '74, when there finally comes this this bill that is that 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 can pass through the legislature and be signed by the governor, it actually passes through a Republican House in order to get there. Oh wow! So I think this is like this is really interesting, right? There's like all these different pieces of you have. You know, sort of like a relatively strong private sector organized, right, in, in rural areas, right, not just in the urban centers, right, in centers for Iowa. I find it really fascinating that it's happening in Keokuk in a place where you, where you, you sort of described a very strong sense of, like, professional identity amongst amongst the workers who really sparked the strike, right, sort of like the most highly educated teachers in Iowa and, um, you know, kind of that sense of, like, I don't know, maybe taking care of the profession. And then, and then sort of, and then this very militant action of going on strike and defying the law and, and negotiating from jail. You know, what ultimately happens is that, you know, you, you do get a public employment relations act that, but that what comes out is, is really is a, is a grand compromise, right? You, you get, you get the right to bargain, but only, but in a, in a way that is interpreted to have a fairly limited scope. Instead of a legal right to strike, you get a system of uh, final offer arbitration. You know, as limited as it was and as constrained as it was, um, over time, uh, Iowa union members actually were able to use it quite effectively. You know, because because the the state was really, well, state state and local em- employers were really 
you know, didn't want to go to, to arbitration. And neither side really wanted to go to arbitration, but the employers really didn't want to go to arbitration. And so what that meant was that it, it pushed everything to the middle, right? It made it really hard for an employer to impose something like the rainbow schedule, some sort of really out of the box. Kind of draconian. Really, uh, yeah. Right. You, you couldn't all of a sudden totally undo everything, undo a contract, right? Um, and so what it meant was that in order to do that, to totally undo contracts, you had to do what they ultimately did in 2017, which was rewrite the law. The uh, growth of the pub- private sector unions really provided the political and strength to ha- make this go through. Now you've had decline in the in private sector unions in Iowa, and sort of the reverse has happened mm-hmm. with the loss of the law. I mean, would you would you describe the story in that way? It, is the loss of all um, of of public sector bargaining in Iowa and Michigan and um, in Wisconsin is this all a result of uh, private sector unions in decline? I think it's part of it. The public sector, these nascent public sector unions, the ISEA in particular, the firefighters, they they really did have, they developed ground games, right? You know, they they were aggressively lobbying and uh, and were a, a critical players to getting that law through. So it wasn't just the the presence of the public or the private sector, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 I do I do think there is something to be said though for the decline of union density. And so let, just give you an example. So so one of the the, the republic young liberal Republican who who helped floor manage the um, Iowa Public Employment Relations Act through in 1974. He was uh, out of Clinton. We oftentimes talk about rural versus urban, right? Well, Iowa is one of these places that sort of something in between, right? So it's really best thought of as a, as a patchwork of these towns of about 10,000, 20,000, you know, somewhere in between rural and urban. And so, but in a town like like Clinton, if you if you had, a, you know, several thousand grain millers, right, organized grain millers, right. you know, they could, you know, that was a powerful voting block. And, and it didn't matter, you know, you could be a Republican, you could be a Democrat. If you wanted to get elected in Clinton, you had to go and listen to the interests of that 2,000 strong group of organized workers mm-hmm. as the, 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 the jobs themselves disappeared or as the, the, the factories themselves disappeared, their concentrated voting power disappeared, and it, it made it much more difficult to, to, to leverage that in rural areas, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's a certain story about the decline of density. Also, like Wisconsin and Michigan and Indiana and Iowa, those are states in which, while the private sector union density has declined, it's actually still higher, my understanding is, in those states than it is in, you know, to be honest, many states in the Northeast. Right. And so I think, I guess like my question is, is there also like a, a component in terms of like, like what the politics of the private sector unions have been and, and like sort of a shrinking of vision and right. This whole question of like 50% of, of union members in Ohio voted for Trump. Right. Right. So Iowa is one of these weird places where you don't think about it as necessarily as a union state, but it's numbers, at least up until recently are pretty well tracked with national trends. Right. Where, so, so the, the overall density is approximately the same as as the national density. And, and that also means that, you know, that, that your private sector's right around, you know, hovers right around 10% and your, but your, your public sector, um, you know, reached into the 30s, right? Mm-hmm. So 
I'm not necessarily convinced that it was a, a, a limit of vision. I'm really, I'm going to be charitable. It's, I don't think it was so much a limited vision as it was, um, you know, honestly, I, I'm beginning to believe the crisis of deindustrialization was a slow one, you know, and, and that, and, and that the decline in, pub, in private sector union density, it was offset to such a degree by the by the explosion of organizing in the public sector. Some of these things that look like the writing on the wall, like the you know the uh, or harbingers of the of of our present, didn't look like they necessarily pointed inevitably in that direction in the late seventies and the early eighties, at least in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I feel like that a lot of the narrative of kind of like the Clinton, Obama, Clinton, Democratic Party is sort of well, industrial jobs. They're just naturally going to go away to other countries and and the public sector is sort of naturally going to shrink. And sort of it's this, you know, of of the importance of kind of like the agents of change, right, from from industrial workers to public sector workers to now it's sort of like uh, – you know, we're, we're kind of left with the only people left in the labor movement, service sector workers in, in New York and the Bay Area, mm-hmm. essentially. So it's sort of interesting to think about, like, the earlier versions of the labor movement in the Democratic Party in the 70s and 80s, kind of accepting that sense of inevitable economic change. But, you know, it'll be OK as long as we keep winning elections. Yeah, I think that there was definitely some of that going on. I, I've been trying to plumb the the origins of that in Iowa. And, it, you know, there, there's definitely the beginnings of a, a shift, uh, a sort of, you know, kind of pro-business shift um, that happens by the late 70s, early 80s. Um, interestingly, lately, though, actually, I, I, I'd recently acquired from the Iowa Federation of Labor, well, the State Historical Society acquired for its Iowa labor collection, a, um, a proclamation that Governor Ray signed in 1981 this pro uh, labor uh, proclamation that that you know that asserts the importance of unions in as 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 part as uh, as partners in and, and part a critical part of the um, the economic system of of Iowa and the United States and it's just you know just it feels completely out of place in 1981 um, because you know by by that point you've had. Yeah, from a Republican governor, because you know by that time, you know he's he is now he's he's shortly you know he's not going to be the Republican governor very much longer because he's been replaced by Terry Branstad, you know who who had been who was one of these you know new right state legislators who had um, who had fought the Public Employment Relations Act tooth and nail in the House, uh, but been, but been outvoted, but he's been catapulted into the uh, into the governor's. Uh, uh, office in part because of uh, because of factionalism within the Republican Party that has two of these moderates vying in, against each other and allows Branstad to win. You know he really ushers in this new pro-business anti-union philosophy um, into the governor's office. But you know, but again, it, it takes it you know it takes many decades to to really to come to fruition. The fact that um, there was this sort of you described as like a young liberal Republican. Um, legislature helped. Um, also, Clinton is is where like really one of the first like brutal kind of like union busting lockout or I don't know if I remember if it was lockout or provoking a strike against one of the grain millers locals in 1979 was right that really was sort of like helped set the the model for Patco and and so forth. R- right. Yeah. The Clinton corn strike. Um, the Clinton corn strike. Exactly. Right. And and uh, yeah yeah exactly and and I. 
you know, when I've asked people about this, you know, again, it's the impression that I get is that as brutal as that battle was, that doesn't really seem to be a sense that people recognized it for what we now, how we now see it, right? You know, again, we, right. you know, we, we see it as presaging Patco and, 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 um, but, but you know, for them, it was just this really bruising strike wasn't necessarily part of a pattern yet. So what's the lesson of the uh, Keokuk strike for today? Is there one? That's a good question that I've been trying to think about for a while, which is that there's a few things that I think are important. So, you know, again, you know, these, these are teachers, these are workers who, you know, they weren't waiting for anyone to save them, right? They weren't waiting for the, you know, they, they were working outside of the boundaries of the law. They were bound and determined to, you know, to, to use every lever at their disposal and to fight tooth and nail. And at the same time, what they were doing was is that they were in the process of, or they were part of, a whole series of similar groups of workers working all across the state, right? We can look at the demographic changes and say, oh, well, you know, now there's not as much private sector union density. So isn't it, isn't it just a pipe dream that, that you can um, do anything like this, right? Isn't it, aren't we just doomed? And, and again, I would say no. And, and here's, I'll, I'll give you one example. So in Southeast Iowa, where I live, um, I live actually in Fairfield, Iowa, which is again one of these towns of about ten thousand, um, and and it, it was a um, it was part of a house district that it is part of a house district that includes two counties that went seventy percent for Trump, seventy percent for Trump, two rural counties, much more rural even than than a, than a you know than one that's you know that has a town of ten thousand as its high as its largest largest urban area um and then and then the, and then the um the the county i live in which is jefferson which actually it's a it is an odd place because it has this big center of transcendental meditation and has lots of people from all over the world um, the, the crucial transcendental think, meditation explain explain fairfield iowa to people <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, right. I'm sorry. Okay. So, um, so in the 1970s, it all comes back to the seventies. Um, there was a little town, a little, uh, college called Parsons college. That was again, one of these, uh, you know, little liberal arts colleges that dot, dot the, the landscape in the Midwest and in Iowa, especially. And, uh, and it folded as, you know, as sort of an early harbinger again of what's happening to a lot of small Midwestern, uh, liberal arts colleges. And it was, um, it was bought up by, uh, the, uh, a group of transcendental meditator, meditator, meditation enthusiasts, I guess, um, who were connected to the Yogi for the Beatles. Um, and the Maharishi. The Maharishi, yes. And they established uh, what is today the uh, Maharishi uh, University of Management, or, or Maharshi, that's what they say locally, Maharshi. And and so so it's become a... but. So, so it, it's become, and it's attracted people, like I say, from all over the world. Um, you know, from from India, um, lots of, of of people have brought their money um, and their culture with them from California, and so it's not, it is not a normal place. But, but, but just stay with me for a second. Okay. Um, so, just after the 2016 election, our our you know relatively sort of middle of the road Democratic House member dies. And there's a special election. 
suddenly there becomes this this question of you know can can we retain this seat? And I, I saw it happen. I was a very small part of it. You know, there there was there you could still build a coalition, right? This was only as as weird as Fairfield is, as much as it doesn't necessarily represent small towns all across the state. Um, people built a coalition, right? A coalition that included school teachers, you know, towny school teachers who were not meditators, some of whom were you know I'm sure Republicans um, who saw what had happened, and other public sector workers, um, uh, members of the steel workers. Um, there's there's still a foundry in uh, in Fairfield that it's very small, um, but there are you know there's still some industrial workers there. Um, and then lots of people who are, again, you know, not necessarily part of a labor coalition, but who were brought in um, to, to, to support um, a, a Democratic candidate um, and, and, and to win that seat. And, and also receiving support from next door in, uh, in Wapalo County and Ottumwa, one of these old meatpacking towns, which now has a, a, a revived uh, UAW local really aggressive, radical uh, leadership there. And uh, they were providing a lot of, 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 of assistance. And, and we were able to, to not, we were able to maintain that seat for the Democrats, you know, even when two thirds of the district went 70% for Trump. But then we were able to turn around and just completely rout all of the conservative school board um, members who were trying to to take over the the Fairfield school board, it's it's not it, it's it isn't it isn't about any particular demographic that that makes it possible or impossible in in every new circumstance, right? Uh, can you build a coalition? You know, it's 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 potentially possible almost anywhere, almost any time, if you can find the right levers. I, I want to ask about how the Iowa labor movement has been has been responding to the new legal regime, you know, specifically what has happened in some of the recertification elections that have happened and what has been the effect on unions and union staff and organizing and, and how has the, how is the, the new laws affected conditions on the shop floor? Right. Uh, well, you know, I mean, uh, terrible things have happened and some hopeful things have happened, right? So you've already had units that have lost entire contracts. You know, you see, you, you've had, you've had parts, you've had employers who have, enthusiastically jumped in, not surprisingly, um, uh, to, to take advantage of the law to, uh, uh, to impose their authority. Right. So, you know, you've had units that have lost entire contracts. Um, you've had pay freezes, uh, steep increases in health insurance, these sorts of things. But, um, you've also had, uh, in the last couple of months, um, the first real big wave of these recertification elections came through. And uh, and of those, there were uh, 481 in these last couple of months. And of uh, and of the 481, uh, you had 449 vote to retain their union. So, so, so COGS, if I can talk about it for an example, you know, here, here's a place, because this is another one of these units that I've done a lot of. Uh, so let's, let's, let's say what COGS is. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Um, that's all right. Because we all have a connection to it. We've we've talked about it on the show before, but um, go ahead. Cogs is uh, so Cogs is the campaign to organize graduate students, and uh, the it is the United Electrical Workers Local 896, right? So o- organized in 1996, but then continues to go by the name of its organizing committee, the campaign to organize graduate students. Which I think is important in this moment because, you know, the way I begin begun to think about it is that you know. Co- this is true, I think, of a lot of unions, but a lot of locals. But it's, I think, definitely true of Cogs, which had its birth in a in a in a social movement in many ways amongst graduate students that was bigger than 
bigger than a local union and that and it kind of squeezed that social movement into the confines of a local union very successfully for 20 years and is now facing this question of you know what happens if if the things that allowed us to exist as a local union disappear what happens that there are there are, there's the possibility at least and i know that i mean right now from the people i've talked to in cogs you know like they they definitely want to to, to fight the battle for recertification and to maintain themselves as a local union, even if that fails, that, that by shifting from arguing for your rights as workers to, to falling back onto your rights as, as students, um, you know, you can still have leverage. And so again, I, I think that's the thing, right? Is, is that, is that workers have to seize every wrench and hammer and lever. And, you know, like when, when the, when the boss, closes a window or takes away one tool, you search around in the dark until you find something else. And then you use that. Right. I mean, I think that's, that's it is that because the, because the alternative is, is, is paralysis is death. Our only option is to be creative. Well, I guess, you know, the thing listening to your story about Keokuk, the thing that comes to mind is politicians often respond with labor laws in situation where there are disruptive strikes and so if you could find several local places where you had a militant enough workforce to, to strike, would, wouldn't, that, wouldn't the lessons of Keokuk be that that's a way to move back towards more comprehensive labor law framework? The other thing you can take away from from your description of the strike is is that there are opportunities when the when bosses overplay their hands, mm-hmm. um, that you know that that broadly alienates the community inside and outside of labor against them, and that those present certain opportunities. Uh, yes, I mean I, I would say that that you know I mean when you look at whether it's the Wagner Act or whether it's um, the Iowa Public Employment Relations Act, you know, you see in there, you know, the clear references to the need to bring labor peace, right? And so, right. I mean, that's another that's another option, right? You take away you take away the labor peace, and uh, and and maybe they'll reconsider. And but you know, it's one of those things where I, I mean, I, I think you're, I think that's actually absolutely right. But but uh, but I, I wouldn't want to just sort of. I, I'm not the person to go to the barricades first, right? You know, I'll follow the workers, but the workers have to go there first. Well, I think it's also interesting that you sort of mentioned that one of the significance of the Keokuk strike was that it was its connection to the ISEA, an organization that also had like a real political operation, right? It's almost as if you need both of those things. You need the militants on the shop floor, and then you also need like an actual strategy to win political hegemony. Right. And, and to, to give you another example of that, so the ICA, so this was actually, this was a moment when there were plenty of Republican teachers, right? And, right. and, and in fact, they, for example. yeah. And so they, 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 in fact, they hired a guy named George Brown as their primary uh, lobbyist. And George Brown had worked in the Ray administration, right? He was, he was a Republican. He was, he had formerly been, uh, I believe communications director for the Iowa Republican party, right? right? You know, they, they, they picked a ringer to, you know, to lead, to lead their lobbying efforts. We should and, clarify, we should clarify for our younger listeners, younger listeners here that the Republican party in the 1960s just straight off was to the left of the current democratic party. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's one big question I'm wrestling with, and that is, 
could you design a strategy where you statewide found your, and I understand you're resisting, you know, sort of naming this, but you look at it statewide, you figure out what your most militant locals are, and you set up a strike wave of five or six or seven places um, that are going to strike when their contracts come up as a way to start putting labor peace back on the table. Because I, I, don't, I don't see how you get anywhere back towards what was there without that level of disruption. So I guess that's, that's one question is, 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 is that seem reasonable and is anything like that happening uh, not to my knowledge. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, the, you know, there, there's definitely, I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, there, there's been, um, I think we do have a generation of people who have grown up without that um, being seen as, um, as, a, as a viable option. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to, I think it will probably take, you know, people being brought to it as a last resort mm-hmm. Um to, to, to perhaps turn it back into being an action that people consider to be a, a, a part of the tool chest. And do you sense that there's any backlash at all? Um, I think people were really confused why, um, why collective bargaining had to be one of these pieces that, that had to be done. There were public sector union members in all 99 counties of Iowa, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was something that touched people all over the place. There are lots of, of farmers um, who were themselves or had sons or daughters who were on unionized road crews, right? right. You know, um, it's not it's not the same as it used to be, but you know, but but I I, I think that it it would be possible to no, wrong I mean, put them. I mean, in some ways, it's worse than I mean. I remember like right school district blue collar employees in Iowa. And like half of them were farmers who couldn't make a living. Well, they couldn't afford health insurance. Yeah. Right. They couldn't have health insurance for themselves as farmers. And so they worked as bus drivers and custodian, part-time custodians in the school districts. Mm-hmm. Like that was a big chunk of, of the UE members we were organizing 20 years ago. Right. And I, and I think that again, like, like to come back to the coalition's argument, like, you know, you, the, those people by themselves aren't enough, but if you can mobilize them and if you can mobilize their networks, um, and and educate them um, with a with a pro union message that says you know why did your cousin have to take it in the teeth so that um, rich suburban Iowans you know could uh, could could have a tax break um, or the the very richest most predatory uh, farmers you know have their taxes protected and can you know can you join us as part of a of a coalition to to push back against that i i, I think it's actually possible well i will look forward to seeing it i i've been i i have <laughs> no i mean i'm i'm skeptical only because i've watched wisconsin and michigan you know and i know there are people there fighting back but their labor movement i mean think of wisconsin which put up this you know fairly noble capital protest fight uh, for a long time, but just has never been able to turn it around, nor have they been able to win elections, nor does there seem to have been some great popular consequence 
of the uh, the defeat right. of, of labor. And I mean, largely Other the defeat is Trump, is Trump won Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, right, because I mean, they were this, able to, this they is were the problem of Obama did not go to Wisconsin. I, that's my concern. My cynicism about it is that, you know, this is a it's a snowball running down a hill that gets bigger as it goes because as you beat labor in the public's in the private you know in the private sector you're able to push them back in the public sector you're able then to enforce vote su- voter suppression laws you're a- you know you're just able to move the whole the whole um, pendulum in in the direction of the bosses and of wealthy people it's it, it's it's like they used to say an injury to one is an injury to all if they kill off the industrial union, suppress the vote of poor people and people of color. They're just, I guess I, I just don't see where the, I don't see where the corner is, how you turn the corner. That's, that's, I guess my, my concern or my, you know, sort of my question to you is, is can, can you turn the corner? How do you turn it? Because what, what we've done so in Michigan and Wisconsin hasn't worked despite very great efforts on many, on behalf of many, many people there, but. I guess the the thing that I, I keep coming back to is is just that what I think is the only historical law, which is the law of unintended consequences, and just the you n- you never you just you can't tell what's going to happen. Uh, I'm originally from Alabama, and I've done um, work on the civil rights movement in Alabama, and you know I mean what what happens before you get the 1963 protests that ultimately overturn that segregation regime. In, in Birmingham, that organization is only formed in 1956, and it's only formed um, after the state of Alabama outlaws the effectively outlaws the NAACP. The state took away one tool, and so the people of Birmingham created another one to fight with, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't until years later that that actually came to fruition, and and but it was ultimately successful in creating this point of, of rupture. You know, there, there's sort of two types of hope, I've begun to think. You know, one, one, there's the kind of hope which is essentially the kind of opiate of the masses kind of hope, right? Which is, you know, a kind of paralyzing, paralyzing hope because you're, you're, you're kind of waiting for the world to save you or for, you know, for something else to change and maybe hopefully down the road there'll be something that will turn the, cor- turn the corner for you. And the other kind um, I, I'm beginning to like to think, at least, is that is a kind of um, kind of active hope. You know, it is realistic about the challenges, but recognizes that the only way for things to turn the corner is for you to never stop looking for the wrench that you know when you first grab it, it looks like a wrench, but it ends up being you know precisely the tool you need. Um, but you just you couldn't tell at the time because you you just didn't know. And I agree with that. You know, sort of trying to draw lessons from history is good. But most of my life, when things have gone well, they have caught me off guard. So um, mm. also when they've gone bad, they've caught me off guard too. I'm generally <laughs> caught off guard, really, when you think about it. No fucking idea what we're doing. That's really the the main point I've come. I've the conclusion I've made. Well, that seems to me like a good place to stop. But uh, John, Jonathan, thanks for so much for having this conversation today. Uh, you've been listening to the smash up derby uh, find us on twitter at uh, smash up podcast and tell your friends about us uh, we'll catch you next time
You've been listening to the Smash Up Derby, the podcast about working class politics. If you like what you hear, head over to our website, smashuppodcast.com. There's links to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. And uh, sign up for our email list, follow us on Twitter, and uh, there's also an ask or comment section if you've got questions or comments. Uh, you can also follow us or tweet at us on Twitter at Smash Up Podcast. <laughs>